Thanks for tuning in to another edition of the Business of Fun podcast. It's me, Dave Wakeman. Uh, my guest today is Martin Haig. He is the former head of Ticketmaster in Asia. And we had a really long conversation. Martin and I are buddies, so this was a good one. Uh, this is the first episode that I have recorded since the pandemic. Um, so you'll have to forgive me any... Um, stumbles and pauses or uh badly worded questions any of that stuff but we laugh we joke we we crack up a little bit um so this is a good one um i want to make sure that before i get to the podcast episode i point you towards a few things uh next week i'm releasing the podcast today it's um thursday july 9th 2020 on the july 14th and 15th the NATB, the National Association of Ticket Brokers, is holding a virtual conference. And you can sign up. I'll put a link for it in the show notes. Uh, but it's free. And it's a two-day affair where there's a couple pa- different panels with people all over the industry, the primary and the secondary, to talk about dealing with the pandemic and then what comes next. I'm doing a panel on Thursday, the f- or Wednesday, the 14th of July, with uh, Patrick Ryan from Eventelect, Dr. Corey Gibbs, um, Ken Sulky from Las Vegas Tickets, and we're going to be talking about relationships. Uh, I think it's going to be really, really a, a good conversation. It's going to be really, really important. And it's after we planned for it yesterday, I think you're going to learn a lot. I learned a lot just from the conversation, um, having a chance to talk with Patrick and Corey and Ken. I think you're going to learn a great deal. So look for that. Visit the NATB.org uh, or search uh, NATB Virtual Conference, but I'll put a link in the show notes. Also, make sure that you check out the Booking Protect website. It's BookingProtect.com. Uh, Booking Protect just recently announced a new partnership with uh, We Are Wellness, who Andy Romero Birkbeck was on the podcast and talked about mental health a few weeks back. Uh, but Booking Protect and We our well-being have come together to offer um, a mental health assessment, um, checklist, a bunch of mental health tools for folks in the live entertainment, uh, theater, sports industry to help make sure that workers, uh, staff are getting taken care of as well, Um, giving people tools to manage the stress level during the pandemic, uh, you know, helping people keep their mindset right. Um, You know, I've mentioned either here or in the newsletter talking tickets about my conversation and how Simon shared with me the Stockdale paradox and how important that was. You know, Simon keeps preaching to me, uh, WhatsApping me, emailing me and telling me, uh, control what you can control. You know, so Simon uh, has pulled together some stuff for Booking Protect and we will, we are wellness to make sure that people are in the right mental state have resources to deal with the stress from the pandemic, you know, and, and, and hopefully sooner rather than later, we'll be able to start getting shows on and getting things back to normal or some semblance of normal. Um, Well, normal with people in stadiums and theaters and stuff, you know, so it's really tough, but check out bookingprotect.com. Click click on the blog. Uh, There's a bunch of resources there as far as mental health, um, you know, moving forward, revenue, things like that. So check it out. Also, I want to point you to WeWillRecover.Live. That is an effort put together by my friends Anar and Martin from Activity Stream, along with their great staff. Uh, we Will Recover is a bunch of industry partners. Um, you know, me, uh, Andrew and Carol from the Ticketing Professionals Conference in Birmingham. Angela and Joe from the Ticketing Professionals Conference in Australia. Um, 
Antics. Uh, oh, gosh, I can't even remember. There's just a list of about 25 different people, and they're all slipping my name. Joe Robinson. Uh, you know, tons and tons of people. Resources, classes, checklists, articles, all kinds of great things to help you and your organization get a, gri- a grip on what we're dealing with. Um, refocus your strategy. Think through how you're going to come back from the pandemic. You can find all that stuff at wewillrecover.live. So check that out, wewillrecover.live. It's a really great initiative, really get your folks involved. Um, Like I mentioned in the last podcast episode I posted, um, there's an article from Booking Protect that's there about regaining trust. Trust is a big issue. Um, I know I mentioned the NATB virtual conference for next week. Um, but this trust issue came up a lot in the conversations that I've had in the lead up to the conference because people are a little uncertain. Um, the changing refund pro- uh, strategies, the changing refund policies have left organizations, um, content producers, ticket buyers, a lot of people uncomfortable with what's going on. So make sure you check out these resources. It's going to take a lot of effort to get everything back up and running. And it's going to take all of us working together, which is the point of next week's NATB virtual conference. But let's get to my guest today, who is Martin Haig, who is from the UK now, but he spent the last 17 years in Asia. And so we ha- I wanted to have Martin on because we have been having a bunch of conversations during the lockdown period because, hey, you know, no commute, no anything. You get a lot of time to catch up with people. Um, and one of the things I was really interested in bringing to you was a different perspective on the Asian market. Uh, number one, because Asia has dealt with the, the pandemic first, um, you know, because the outbreak started in China. Uh, they've had a little bit longer to deal with things than we have. Second reason is because of the technological advances that they have made uh, all across Asia and how some of those ideas and some of the technologies and tools and the way they're using them to overcome the pandemic can be helpful to us. And then third, because I think there's a lot of opportunity, and Martin seems to agree with me, that there's a great deal of opportunity, maybe better opportunities to look at Asia over the next year, couple of years than in other places. And so I wanted to have Martin on to talk about that. And we got into it. We This one's a pretty long one, so you may even have to break this up. But it, I think it's worth it because there's a lot of stuff here. I mean, we spend a lot of time talking about what the Asian markets look like um, from venue exclusivity to ticketing fees to the nature of ticket companies in Asia versus other parts of the world. Um, we talk about... Um, you know, how Asian ticket companies are siloed and how that creates a problem for people from outside of a certain country to buy tickets. We talk about the future of tickets in Asia and the Middle East with the upcoming uh, things like the World Cup and the Olympics and the Rugby World Cup uh, that just happened, you know, and how that's uh, had an impact on folks. We talk about the differences between the Eastern culture and the Western cultures um, and what that means to people who are trying to do business in Asia. Right, and basically this was funny uh, because Martin said, "Don't tell his wife," uh, but he goes, "Greg told us all we need to know, so you'll have to go back and listen to the Greg Turner episode." Um, we talk about the secondary market in Asia a lot. Um, we cover 
um, new revenue streams, right? Ways to think about revenue, uh, how to package events once the pandemic's over, because it might create an opportunity to capture revenue that you may not have before or to insulate yourself from losing revenue that you might have because of the changing nature of how many people you can have in the seats uh, or in a venue, um, if you're having outdoor events, um, all kinds of different things. We talk about a lot about sponsorship activation and different ways to, spo- to uh, activate sponsors. Well, we talked about even blockchain. We got the whole thing in there. Um, we got a lot done. Um, it is a long one, but uh, we do try to keep it uh, light and we laugh a lot. I think uh, you can definitely tell that we are cracking jokes most of the time. So without anything more from me, here is my conversation with Martin Hay on The Business of Fun. I want to welcome my friend Martin Hay to the Business of Fun podcast. Martin, how are you, man? I'm very good. Thank you very much, Dave. Thank you very much for having me on your show. Yes, I, I, I will tell the people listening two things about this. Number one, this is the first one that I've done recorded since the pandemic started. So um, hopefully that won't re- deflect from you. <laughs> uh, my, my, my incompetence won't, <laughs> won't shine through. And then the second thing is like, um, is completely that if there's any technical difficulties, they're definitely on me, not Martin. So it's, uh, but it's really awesome to have you here to be the first guy that I'm going to get to talk to. Um, we were introduced by a mutual friend, Greg Turner, who's been on before. Um, so that's what we're going to talk a little bit about how do people are going to recover. Um, I think you bring a really nice perspective on Asia, um, innovation, uh, technology, and a really, really a bunch of a lot of cool stuff. So I, I'm excited for people to hear from you. Um, so thank you for being here. Thank you very much. Yeah. So I will do an introduction for you before, but I think if people are not, have never heard of you before, you were, you, you just left your role as head of Ticketmaster in Asia and you'd lived in Asia for 17 years. And I only want to give that in case people miss the introduction. Um, but the first thing I'm interested in talking about is because I know that compared to the states or even Europe in a lot of ways, the Asian market is um, a lot more, a lot further along techno- with the technology, especially when it comes to events and uh, entertainment and things. Also, we have that they are a little bit further ahead of us in how they're dealing with the coronavirus and the pandemic. So well, the first question I want to ask is about post-COVID. You know, what is the climate likely to look like and how much of you know, how much of a role is technology going to play? Uh, you know, what are some of the lessons we've learned so far from, you know, China and some of the other Asian countries? And how much of this is just an acceleration of trends that were already in play? Yeah, great, great question. Um, there are definitely some differences between Eastern cultures and Western cultures. So, I mean, it's very, it's very difficult to put a broad brush across Asia because there's so many different countries there and things. But basically, most Asians tend to be very law abiding and very compliant when it comes to being told to do things by their governments. Um, there could be some reasons about that. Some governments are a bit stricter than others, like in Singapore can be quite strict, for instance. Uh, but ultimately, when um, when Asians are told to stay at home like they were when they went through SARS, which is the acute respiratory syndrome thing that happened uh, quite some time ago, they one, they went through that so they know how bad things could get with COVID. Um, but also they tend to do what they're 
told to do. So that means one of the reasons why I think COVID didn't spread as quickly in some places, especially in uh, Asia, once it was recognised, is because the administrations were very quick to close things down and the locals were very law abiding and they didn't think, well, hey, I'd, I still want to go out. Forget that. I'm going to still go out and have drinks with my buddies and things. So they, they, they stayed at home. And so that means to me that you might think that the events and yeah, the events seen in Asia might rebound more quickly uh, because basically they've got over COVID more quickly. But I'm not so sure about that because combined with that uh, that compliance to law and instruction, um, they're also extremely can be very, very cautious. And so even if the governments are out there saying, don't worry, it's safe, you can go back out now, they're going to be quite, I think, reluctant to return that quickly, to be honest, because they'll still be a bit nervous about second wave and things like that. Um, conversely, I think the Western cultures are a little bit more um what's the word I'm looking for? Less compliant, maybe, um, and um, would like to remain out and still going for beers and whatever. So I would have thought the chance of a second wave coming in Western cultures is a bit higher than you know, Eastern cultures. By the way, I'm absolutely not a COVID uh, expert, so I'm sure there are probably lots of health workers out there that may or may not disagree with what I've said, but that's the feeling that I have at the moment. Well, that's, that's fair. Um and I would think that I probably would have some more aggressive words for the way that we're handling it in America, but that's, uh, that's for a different podcast that I don't host. So, uh, um, <laughs> so, so knowing that the Asian, the Asian cultures typically have been more or a little stricter, a little more compliant, also a little more cautious. Um, from your perspective, what have we learned so far that will maybe help some of the, uh, some of the organizations, especially in Europe, since they seem to be, um, having a little bit better success of coming back together or getting things in line. Uh, and then further down the road, when eventually, um, hopefully things clear up in the States a little more, um, that we can look to either apply or emulate or, um, you know, learn lessons from. Yeah, um, great. I think that what we're seeing is the events that are coming back, uh, that the promoters are willing to stage um, uh, now are more aligned with things like timed entry um, so that flows can be regulated and so that they can limit the amount of people in a certain venue at a certain time. And also then that the venues could be cleared out, for instance, every every two hours for half an hour so they could clean uh, the, the, the venues in between sessions and things. So there are a lot of timed entry events going on. Um, I think that outdoor events are obviously a little bit more um, – people are a little bit more comfortable for attending those. So we've seen drive-throughs where there's the space in Asia um, and outdoor events um, being staged. So people feel safer that they're, they can congregate in reasonable numbers without having to get too close to people and without contracting a virus because it's not a, a closed environment. Um, and also we've seen quite a few – uh, virtual events happening. So I don't know if you're aware of this band called BTS. I'm pretty sure you are. It's probably what, maybe even the world's largest band at the moment. Um, they constantly break records for, um, for the most amount of tickets sold in the shortest amount of time. I think they, they, they broke all the records at the O2 arena in the UK, which I believe is the most profitable or 
best venue in the world. They keep on winning accolades about that. So they sold 750,000 tickets uh, recently um, uh, for a virtual uh show netting almost 20 million dollars um for us um and they sold those tickets at 26 dollars now i think that's pretty interesting because the o2 um uh the series of shows they did the shows there went for anywhere between 220 pounds and 62 pounds so that means that the virtual event was sold at less than half the price of the cheapest physical ticket or rather a ticket to go to a physical show at the o2 um uh, was sold for so um i think that there'd be probably be lots of people lots of bands and uh management companies thinking well why don't we jump on that trying to do you know virtual events and uh, and you know maybe make you know a fair bit more money um, incidentally that cuts out the promoter um so the promoter might not be that uh, happy and also might even cut out the ticketing company because you know you may not think you need a ticketing company if you can go and sell tickets online elsewhere so um i think that's pretty pretty interesting that the growth is probably going to be in those three main areas i can see timed entry outdoor and, and perhaps virtual well, you brought up the promoter, and, that, and that's interesting to me because one of the challenges that I see when I'm looking at some of these ideas that we're working at and looking at to get through the, the pandemic is are people going to be able to make money off these things, right? Because, I mean, that's always my, <laughs> that's always my first concern is am I going to be able to make money? Um, you know, how much of these things are going to be innovations that stand the test of time? Right. Uh, you know, or uh, you know, some of these things, are they really going to open up new doors that will last a little bit longer or, you know, are there ways to limit these things or create them so that they are profitable for people? And I guess that's two separate questions. Yeah, probably I mean, both clunky, but we'll give that to me being rusty. <laughs> well, there's a couple of things there. for promoters. I think that. They've got a real problem, right? They're going to spend ages trying to work out the risk about, do I want to, yeah, is, has my business model changed? Can I afford to pay the artists so I can afford to pay them in the past? Things like that. But ultimately, I would have thought the capacities for the short term are going to be reduced because of, um, you know, social distancing and things. So maybe capacities will be reduced. Maybe the costs will go up because I'll have to buy more. COVID resistant equipment or, or, or shielding stuff and maybe more staffing to make sure that everyone does stay two meters apart and all that sort of stuff. So for me, it sort of makes sense that ticket prices are probably going to go up and I would have thought that the rarity of events will increase because I doubt you're going to get more events post COVID than you had pre COVID. They're going to be rarer. Um, and conversely, that means that there'll be, there'll be way more demand for tickets because there's going to be fewer events. So, you know, you and I will think, well, I've got to go to an event because I've been starved of events. I mean, yeah. you know, okay, it's my third choice type of band I'd like to go and see, but hey, there's a band in town, so I'm going to go. And so, but the ticket price is going to be more, I would have thought. But then on the flip side as well, I mean, I would have thought the artist might also, in order for promoters to be profitable, I would have thought the artists might have to then start accepting a lot less money than they're used to because they still want to reach large audiences, right? So they might, the promoters might say, look, I can't give you your one million bucks anymore. I can only give you half a million because my capacity has been re- you know, reduced. And really, I mean, this happens a lot in industry, the long tail is going to suffer. I mean, if you're a tiny band, and you're going to go on to try and sell tickets for a virtual event. I mean, how many people are going to turn up? 
100, 200 or something, are they going to pay? So, um, yeah, maybe Adele's of these worlds are still going to be okay, but if you're a B or C rate artist, I think it's going to be quite difficult for you to earn money, right? Yeah. Because, because the promoter's going to be not confident they can set out the event and things like that. I think it's going to be quite tricky for, for, for lower, um, fame artists. Well, let me Does that ask a question. Yeah, no, no, no. I, you're, you're doing a much better job than I am. Don't worry. <laughs> <laughs> um, but it brings up an interesting question because you talked about demand and pricing and reduced capacity. And one thing that I, I struggle with, and I don't know that it could be completely baseless for me to think this way. But when I see, you know, I know the prices will have to go up because, you know, that's just the way that things work. There'll be limited capacity. There's going to be more security. There's probably going to be, uh, you'll probably have to staff still at the same level, if not more than you would before. Um, but then there's, there's always going to, because of the, the size, the capacity that you're able to, it's going to create an artificial sense of demand that may not be there. And what that means to me, and I guess, and the question I want to ask you is how do you, you know, and, and this is like really something that I, I really want to emphasize with people, and I hope that you have a better answer than I do. Um, how do you met out the signal from the noise, I think, right? It's like, so, you know, you're going, oh, man, the, the prices we can get for these things are great, and, you know, the demand is so high for these, like, half-full events. And then, so then as soon as, like, there's a... um a uh, vaccine or a treatment that sort of allows things to go back to normal. How do you keep from taking the wrong lessons from this period of time? I think is what, is what, if that makes any sense. I'm a little bit confused to be brutally on this. No, that's okay. I told you I'm rusty. (laughs) I I guess what I'm asking is, let me rephrase it then, because this is probably, you know, this will be, you know, it's, it's, it's how the sausage made or made or the ugly bits Sorry. before is um, coming out of the pandemic, right? We know that in the near term, if we're going to do some outdoor events, if we're going to do some virtual events, if we're going to do all these things that are different. It's going to limit the capacity and probably going to be able to justify a larger ticket price. Well, how do we keep ourselves from learning the wrong lessons from from higher prices and limited capacities so that when we go back, we don't feel like we can just dump the heavier burden on fans because a lot of places, the ticketing prices had ne- have been growing, you know, so uh, at an irrational rate. And I'm worried that coming out of this when most of the countries in the world are going to be dealing with a, um, a recession, if not a, potentially a depression, that we don't uh, end up shooting ourselves in the foot by trying to uh, charge way too much money and overestimating demand and pricing capacity for people. Um, I think there's, Was that better? Yeah, thank you very much. <laughs> I think there's a solution that is that, um, is redirecting money that's already being spent. That's, I'm not creating money out of thin air, but money, uh, to me, there's a massive GDP about, uh, around an event, and that might be when you first select to go, do you buy some new clothes? Do you have your hair cut? Uh, do you use Uber to get, or Lyft, whatever it is, to get there? Are you going to buy some, um, you know, it could be lots of things. Are you going to go to a restaurant beforehand? Are you going to buy a flight to get there, a hotel, all these sorts of things? That money is already being spent, but at the moment it's already being spent, it's being spent in a, in a very peripatetic way, meaning not, there isn't a platform that's collecting that money. So in order to allow 
promoters to capture more of that money being spent, I think maybe promoters need to start looking at ticketing companies and put a little bit more pressure on ticketing companies to provide more ancillary revenue streams to the promoter so that when you buy a ticket, the the, the, the ticketing company also um, allows uh, for a channel for you know, to say, you want a haircut? We've got a special deal with a haircutting person around the venue. Or do you want some clothes? Do you want all these different ancillary revenues, which you're spending anyway. But instead of being asked to spend it up front on the ticket price, an extra 20 bucks, then why don't you spend your other 200 bucks on your on your flight, you know, all these other things you're buying, but just go through the, the ticketing platform or, or something that the promoter um, controls and they get a clip of it. That's something that could be interesting. No, that, that's actually, um, I want to say I was doing a webinar or somewhere this, this idea has come up before, and it's more of coming out of this, at least in the near term, is people are going to be a little bit more cautious about everything, like you said before. And so it's going to become more important to curate the entire event for people from the time they leave until the time they get back home again. And so yeah, everywhere yeah, that yeah. you can do to manage that relationship, it's a, a chance for you to A, create value, which get, which puts your thumb on the scale of whether or not somebody's going to come visit you, and B, it gives you a chance to make more money. So I, I, yeah, I agree. Um, I, I think there's great opportunity because it's also a trust thing, right? Because they're going to have to trust you. And I think the psychological impact of this is not going to be fully understood for a little, for a, for a good deal of time. And, you know, right now people are really great about like, I can't wait to get to an event or I can't wait to do this or I can't wait to do that. But then we'll see what people actually do when the time comes. And, and that'll be really kind of telling. So, it, you yeah. know, so that, I think that's interesting to me. Mm, wonderful. Yeah. yeah. I mean, something that's we've definitely seen is an acceleration of some, uh, some uh, some things have already been going for some time, like a move to digital tickets. I mean, physical tickets, imagine at the moment people don't want to touch physical tickets, especially if they're being resold, which we might touch on uh, secondly later. But, uh, but uh, the, you know the digital tickets is pretty interesting, right? I mean, like someone starts handing a ticket to somebody else who hands it to somebody else who hands it to someone else who coughs on it or whatever. I mean, that's that move to digital ticketing, I mean, across Asia, even though you, you touch on it, it's very technologically advanced in some places. I mean, go to Korea, go to Japan. They've got some really interesting stuff going on, but still, ticketing tends to be physical. So, I think we're going to see a move to digital tickets quite rapidly. Um, real names on tickets. And the reason why that's important, uh, with email addresses probably attached to it, is for track and trace, which I think uh, I think will. I mean, it might subside over time, but once you put these things in place, it's quite handy to keep them. I think some people might think, especially more authoritarian uh, governments and things. Um, so if you look at Asia, for instance, I mean, Damai, the largest ticketing company in China, still uses physical tickets predominantly. PIA in Japan uses physical tickets. Interpark in Korea, SM tickets in the Philippines, um, Cystic in Singapore, Tixcraft in Taiwan. I mean, some of them have got some... Uh, a little bit of digital capability, but almost always it's a physical ticket that's being sold. Well, let me ask you this because I know that if we don't, if I don't ask you, then I'm going to get my email, email <laughs> inbox filled with emails. Does this mean that we're finally going to see where blockchain changes everything? Um, maybe. I mean, I, I know of. I mean, Ticketmaster have got upgraded. I think it's called. There's uh, a few other. Um, there's a few other blockchain ticketing companies out there. Um, 
Yeah, I mean, I, I quite like the idea of it. I mean, I've definitely, I think it's, I mean, it, it's definitely going to take on the secondary market as well a bit, but this idea about, I've definitely seen it where a ticketing company only fulfills your ticket if you're geofenced within one kilometre of the venue with 30 minutes before the doors open. I mean, that absolutely makes sense uh, in lots of different ways, stops people reselling them. It's, it means that the only way they can use the ticket if they're physically in the near the venue, I suppose. I mean, there's lots of reasons. So yeah, I think, I think, um, blockchain and ticketing, uh, worlds are colliding. Yes, I agree with that. And it seems too, and tell me if I'm wrong, but this, uh, this is accelerating a trend that people wanted to push of things going mobile. And so it, all it took was a virus to get all the big data heads uh, exactly what they wanted, which is like access to all this data. So my question is, right, because the challenge I always had with the push towards dig- or digital tickets and the idea like, oh, I need all this data, I need all this data, is that we had so much data to begin with and people weren't using it very well. Um, how do we make sure that, you know, how do we make this data that we're going to have because of, uh, con- you know, uh, digital tickets or contactless payments, how do we make it useful for people and add value to them? That's tricky. I mean, um, I'm going to go back to the old VCR times. So I'm, I'm sure you had a VCR, but I had a VCR. I think and I still I, have one. <laughs> when I had some disposable income, I went in to get the VCR had the most buttons on, right? But then eventually I only ever used the three or four buttons, record, rewind, fast forward, and stuff like that. So, I mean, I, I've run ticketing companies for some time, and I've always been a little bit frustrated in that, most people only really use the ticketing company for a few functions. And I said, oh, we've got all this other stuff going on. And really, I think that to get the most out of data, you've really got to invest time and understand it. So I've, I've been blue in the face telling promoters sometimes, we've got all this other stuff that you can access via a back office that gives you downloadable reports and things like this. And what I found was, again, the 80-20 rule. 20% of your clients really got it and used 80% of the data available, and the other 80% of clients didn't even bother checking into the back office, and they'd ring you up every now and again saying, how many tickets have you sold? So I think that you, you are right. The There's more data available now, and ticketing companies have got to get better at explaining and being consultative with their promoters around all the benefits that they could have if they invested a bit of time. And I think it's really worthwhile promoters sitting down with ticketing companies to say, well, look, what have you got? How can you help us? I mean, I mean, I had a, a case of a comedy person coming to me uh, saying, well, my ticket sales aren't very good. I'm thinking I'm going to change the uh, – change the whole setup of the of the event because I think my punters are getting my my patrons are getting bored with the setup of it's always the same and I looked at his ticket sales and I did a big report and I said actually the problem is you keep on having to find, acquire new customers. Your retention's actually not that good. So you're saying people are bored of your setup. That can't be true because they're not coming back to get bored. So you, you, you need to have a look at uh, some things that you could do to re- either lower your acquisition costs or to retain people. And we came up with something that was basically saying, well, your average um, – order size was two tickets. So why don't we not disrupt that? Why don't we still allow people to buy two tickets but get one free and then make people um, uh, do marketing for you by thinking, well, I've got a third ticket that's free. Why don't I hand that out to someone else who might be an advocate of 
of uh, comedy and then you'll acquire more people and then you've got to do a better job of retaining them and do you know what that's exactly what he did and he was he was going to change his whole setup and that was a big deal for promoters so I'm going to change the whole way I do stuff and eventually he didn't change much apart from just changing a slight way of marketing and he ended up doing really well I think that's pretty interesting yeah I, it, it, to me it's always been a matter of educating people better because I th- and I think what, and I don't know if this is more of a statement or if, if, the, if I'm going to have a question, so forgive me for this one. It's um, a lot of times if we're doing, and this is the same for me in marketing and strategy as I'm sure it is for anybody in technology, it's like we're so close to the challenge that we are used to dealing with or like the tech, in, in the case of technology, so close to the technology that we forget what it's like not to know what these things do. And so I think, you know, the, and this is a question that I'm always asking myself is like, how do I do a better job of educating people to help to let them know what they can and can't do? Right. Because it's simple when you have an, a, an example like this, where you're talking to the promoter, or like the comedian, um, and you go, Hey, look, look at this. This data doesn't make sense, but how do you make that an ongoing part of what you're doing? Because I think there's a lot of great opportunities to teach people early on because, and then it gives you a competitive advantage because Let's face it, most of the time people aren't getting taught how to use things very well except after the onboarding process. Yeah, I think there's there's definitely a fallow part in the cycle for an event organiser and the fallow bit isn't when you've just gone on sale. It's a bit where you're trying to dream up what your next show is going to be or something. But Well, the reason I'm mentioning that is that invariably tickling comes quite a long way down the list of what people engage with after they've you know sort out the artists and they sort out the plane and they sort out the production they sort out all these different things and ticketing quite often comes quite last and and also that sales cycle ends up being compressed because no one ever goes on sale when they think they're going to go on sale it always gets shortened because something happens you never get more time you always get less time and so what i would probably say is when you do have that fallow period sit down and talk to your ticketing company because Normally, when I'm trying to explain something to them, they go, oh, if only I knew that three months ago, or if only I knew that before I went on sale, or if only I knew that before I did my marketing campaign, or if only I knew whatever. I get that all the time. And you've really got to do it in your fallow period to get to understand you know, what's happening. I mean, some ticketing companies have activations for sponsors, right? And 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 I've... And I've run a company that had an activation for a sponsor and very few, um, very few promoters use that activation platform because they all say, well, I've already signed my deals with my sponsors and so I'm either going to give it to them for free. I'm going to try and get them to pay extra after the fact. And you know what? I haven't got enough time because all these other things are happening and my events about to happen. I haven't got enough time to talk to you. So they go, well, if, and they say, well, if only you spoke to me before. So next time you're going to do an event, come and speak to me before and I'll say, why don't you, as the, on the thank you page on the on the um, on the on your screen, or and even the thank you email that you get? Why don't you have an activation in there for a bank that says, um, you know, do you want to acquire a credit card? That's very valuable to a sponsor if it's an HSBC sponsor or something, or whatever it might be, or a Citibank sponsor, or something like that. And they go, yeah, I can't remember that. And quite often, you know, they don't. But that, I mean, a, 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 a sponsor, a, account, a bank might pay, what, 100 US dollars per um, acquired 
credit card acquisition. Yeah, yeah maybe. Maybe you could just say we'll do it, we'll do it for free, but I want to share 50-50 with that, with that acquisition. If a hundred people acquire a new credit card, then yeah, that's a decent amount of money. It makes a difference. Yeah. Or if you're talking about it from the idea of like, I already have the sponsorship signed and you have something that's really cool that's already a part of your ticketing system and you have never used it before, how about you go, hey, I want to do this experiment with you. I don't want to charge you anything. I just want to be able to see the results and be able to use the res- and be able to use this as a case study. And then, Very rarely happens, yeah. yeah but yeah, yeah, that's a great idea. Yeah. Um, actually, I want, to, I want to go back to something else because we talked about how do you think things are changing. I want to talk about that acceleration. So we talked about digital tickets. Yep. So also about RFID. I mean, I have had a run a ticketing company that had RFID included in it, and I would spend ages trying to tell people that RFID is good for lots of different reasons. Your spend goes up at venues. Your your, your patrons are happier because they usually have shorter queues and there's lots of there's manifold reasons why it's really good but ultimately they always they always came to lots of excuses now that you've got covid i'm absolutely you know inundated with people saying well we need cashless it's really simple they want to do it immediately you know so i've run out of the run out of uh times i've gone into shops that never had cashless payments and now they don't want to touch your money when you walk in they're waving it and say no 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 cash and they're and they're showing you this pos this point of sale system in front of them that has got pay wave now and you just wave your credit card there tap and go wherever it might be and then you just walk away and it's paid and it's that digital transformation has gone from res- digital resistance to embracing it it's it's, it's you know, incredible there's a there's a company in in asia called pouch nation that is doing uh is offering temperature monitoring wristbands at the moment and um they are saying to people that we'll monitor your uh, attendees for the 14 days before they turn up to an event to see how their temperature is fluctuating and i mean i don't know if you want to give that data away and stuff but anyway um but that's pretty interesting and, and they're about to this is a world exclusive uh, they're about to announce uh, very shortly that they're doing uh, a first in wristbands for a very large company in motorsports in asia soon and they're going to announce that um, next week that would be very interesting for the RFID uh, wristband wearable thing and that's going to come out very shortly so I think I think non-physical contact with cashless payments and access control um, is is going to be pretty interesting um, I mean in Asia it's moving there I mean there's, there's been one company in particular sorry you want to yeah, yeah I was going to say that doesn't this open up the door for RFID uh, you know and cashless payments it's also not just about speeding you through the line or doing things it's also going back to what we were talking about just previously an opportunity to engage your sponsors an opportunity to um, you know like really use some of that data positively uh you know i just see money that's <laughs> what i see uh, no enormously i mean i i i was involved in a uh a, a festival in hong kong called uh Clock and Flap, it's Hong Kong's largest music and arts festival, and they'd been joined up for years. They were doing digital um, marketing with in-house digital ticketing, and then they had um, RFID cashless payments and access control, and at that time I was also selling sponsorships. So I would go to a sponsor, and, and sometimes they'd ask, how much data, say, how much data have you got? Let me, how much do you know about your, your, your patrons? And I'd say, how much, how much do you want to know? I've got, 
millions of data reference points. And they'd say, what do you mean? I said, well, the average person turns up for three hours, 27 minutes. They go from drinking um, cider in the afternoon to uh, to beer in the evening to maybe a JD right at the end and, 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 and things like that. I mean, uh, yeah, I would... I would throw the question back to them. I'd say, well, who do you think is the most profitable attendee at this festival? Is it the student that buys the tickets nine months before, the cash-strapped student that buys the cheapest ticket nine months before the festival? Or is it the rich banker who buys the ticket one day before? It's a three-day festival. And I'd say, by the way, I'm not expecting to answer this question. Um, but, you know... I, I would say it's probably the cash-strapped student because he has bought the tickets nine months before, so it gives you lookalikes on tracking for digital marketing on the types of people that might buy tickets. That that person's probably got about, what, a 100 times more friends than the rich banker, and they're probably telling people on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram they're going, they're influencing other people, and when they turn up, they are not turning up just for the best band they want to see, they're turning up for the whole festival, and they're buying more birds and they're taking way more photos of all of the um, of all of the sets and distributing that on uh, WhatsApp and TikTok or whatever they're doing. And so that person is way more um, way more profitable to, uh, and valuable to the festival and the and the sponsor. Yeah, it, it's counterintuitive too. But I found this out when I worked on a festival in Miami. It's the complete same thing. It's you can't just take the dollar sign that they spend and look at it as the whole of their package. Because if not, you're short-circuiting yourself. And this is what I think happens. It causes a lot of trouble with pricing just in general because then you lose all of these things, right? I want that nine months to be able to remarket to the kid, right, and talk to that kid, right? Yeah. Oh, my God, here every time I announce a new act or a new, new uh, sponsor or a new – beer or liquor or anybody that's going to be participating, that's a chance for them to be excited again. And they'll talk about something, they'll mention something, and they might sell. I mean, we would, I forget the exact number, but we would we could track where it would be like one ticket customer just like that was a student. It would turn into like 7.8 tickets sold or something ridiculous. I mean, crazy, right? I mean, like way, way and, and each one of those, and it was like you'd sell out, right? I mean, it would take time though. You'd have to You'd have to think like that. You'd have to manage the relationship, but it completely did. Or you could have the person at the last second who'd spend, you know, a hundred. The, the kid would spend a hundred bucks. The other person would spend a thousand bucks. But really, was it a hundred bucks that kid spent? Because if you got seven point eight people, that means you become seven, you know, almost eight hundred dollars. And that's yeah. also money you don't have to spend because they're doing your job for you. But you know. Yeah, lowering costs, absolutely. And it allows you to course correct on your, uh, on your marketing. If you're not doing, doing a good job of marketing, you can do some A-B testing and change it and get different people reacting to different things. I mean, that's why long sales cycles are really important, by the way. You really have to have long sales cycles. And it also allows you as a promoter to um, engage um, more sponsors, right? Because you've got a really long sales cycle. You've got ages that you can keep pushing that message out in a non-intrusive way. Right. And well, and one of the things too, when you brought up that example too of the kid versus the banker, it's um, a lot of times too with the ticket prices now being, or there's two things. Some the prices sometimes are arising at a, a way that like don't match inflation. They maybe outstrip the ability for people to pay. Um, at the same time, they're going on sale much much earlier. The idea that we can offer people payment plans, 
right? Yeah. It, yeah. And it's, to me, it's great because the thing is, if you miss the payment, you don't, I get, I keep the money <laughs> and I still have the ticket, right? Um, but it also just allow, gives people a, the opportunity to buy, right? It gives, it, you know, it gives them another way to engage, right? And I don't, you know, my philosophy has always been like, I want to get you in because if I can get you in the door, then I know I can trade you up in any number of ways in revenue, you know, and, and I'm curious about your ideas on that. Yeah, I totally agree. I mean, that payment plan is brilliant. It's like we're going to do installments over three months. So, you know, you may not have that much expendable income, disposable income per month. So why don't I split it into three easily digestible amounts? And that means that the funnel or the total addressable audience for your show, when you're putting on a show that costs $200, you think you only five percent of people in the cash America can afford it, well suddenly it's no longer, you know, a huge amount of money. It's now digestible in much smaller chunks and you'll find the addressable audience has gone up by threefold, right? So you stand more chance of selling it. But yeah, other things you could do, I mean there's things like, you know, there's a move towards buy now and pay later, which basically means you do reserve the ticket now, but you don't actually have to pay for it until later on, until maybe the show is actually um, going to go ahead. So, for instance, actually, I haven't been very articulate here, but many people are probably worried about buying a ticket at the moment because they're worried it's going to get cancelled. And if it does get cancelled, there's been a little bit of a bit of the press about how easy is it for you to get the money back or is the show just being postponed so that you don't get it back for a while. But if it's you do something... It's been here uh, in the States. It's been a, with StubHub, Ticketmaster, uh, organizations changing their policies around these things or uh, changing the classification of the ticket. It, it's been a big issue. Yeah, so if you can do something where you're going to reduce that that nervousness, like, well, how about we do something whereby we we reserve, we ring fence someone in a credit card, a bit like when you walk into a hotel and they say we're going to take $100 off you for your minibar and we'll only charge you when you leave if it was used or whatever. Why can you do that? You have, right, well, you're going to buy the ticket. We're going to reserve it, so we're going to ring fence on your credit card so we know we're going to get it, and we're only going to charge you two days before the event. Now, as a promoter, clearly you want the money in as soon as you can, but it's still a confirmed ticket. And the only way you're not going to get that money is if um, the, the show doesn't happen and then you release the, 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 uh, the money for, on the card anyway. So I think I think buy now, pay later is pretty cool. And also... That's a, that's a chance, though, too, to like offer different incentives, right? Because if you're the promoter, you do want to get the money or, earlier. So instead of like yeah. just assuming that you are, are owed it, right... What kind of incentive can I do to make it feel comfortable, right? And, you know, and I know um, another example, too, here is that, you know, and listeners of the podcast are going to be not at all unfamiliar with this one, but refund protection, right? Be in, you know, Booking Protect has, like, some interesting data about what this means like because before um, the crisis, I don't know exactly what the um, the conversion rates were, but now they're definitely double digits, Oh, well, in Asia, it's gone crazy. I was actually just speaking to one the other day. Am I allowed to name the company or not? Is that okay? I've done and named a couple of companies already, but as long as it's booking protect, you can, you can announce the, no, 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 you can, you can, you can announce whoever it is. Okay, sorry, booking protect. This one's called protect group. I mean, I speak to them, very similar yeah. name. <laughs> um, sorry if they took your IP, uh, but, um, I spoke to them in, in Asia because they've got some Asian data, so it's worth sharing. And that was before, COVID, their, their opt-in was around about 8% for ticket insurance. So now, yeah, they've even quoted as high as 50%. It's gone absolutely crazy. And that is 
you know, a lot of bottom line, basically, going to the, the ticketing company. I mean, yeah, there might be a move towards ticketing companies, I think, sharing some of that revenue with the promoter. So in my opinion, that would, would make sense. Um, but um, if I was a promoter, I would definitely be looking at if ticketing companies are offering uh, ticketing insurance. So anyway, yeah, that's, that's well, well, I think it's like this is like this is a long going uh, an ongoing uh, conversation we have here which is like you're just like, i think you talked on it earlier it's like just giving people more options more add-ons if you're feeling uncomfortable it just seems like an obvious thing to offer and you know it's um the reason that everybody doesn't do it i don't know i don't understand <laughs> i don't understand you say look you could i mean it's a bit like an early bird but instead of doing an early bird you could just say well i mean i suppose it's the same but you can say well, that buy now pay later thing so we'll offer you that but if you buy now it's 120 bucks. If you buy it later on, it's 130 bucks. You just or 140 bucks. You just say it up front as well. I mean, giving people options, right? Um, let, let them choose their price point in a way. That's pretty interesting. Yeah. The other, I was going to say another way too. That's like, hey, uh, you know, as another incentive, right? It, and this is just you, you're bundling the thing in. Um, is you take the refund protection product, you add it on to the ticket price immediately, and you say, hey, look. It's going to cost you $100 today, but what we're going to do is we've added an insurance policy through Booking Protect or whomever um, that, you know, covers your ticket in case of loss. Or if you pay it later, right, closer to the date, we'll sell it to you for $110. Yeah, and, yeah, absolutely. And so yeah. either way, I win because I've, I've, I've either raised the price or I got the money early. And, and it's an incentive. Yeah, it isn't, um, isn't to take as much money as you can from the, the, the punter, you know, because we've touched on that before, saying you're already spending this money and perhaps mm-hmm. they can spend it through the platform to help the event become profitable or whatever. But I suppose the idea is just making the ticket buyer comfortable, right? Giving them a better user experience, more of a fan journey, letting the, letting the, 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 the ticket buyer know that there are all these offers that are associated with the sponsor. You know, if you, if you, do this, you get this extra deal. Like, you know, might be if you take your digital ticket into a BMW showroom to have a test drive, we'll give you a BMW hat and something else and whatever. That's that's before the event. And after the event, say this offer still lives on. After the event, take your wristband or whatever it might be or your digital ticket, show it, and you take a test drive, we'll give you something else, right? And that way that that... That, that sponsor's happy that there's activations ongoing uh, after the event happens as well. I think all those things are really important. Well, yeah, it, number, it does a couple of things, at least to my point of view. Number one, it makes the sponsorship value higher, right? It also makes it much more likely you're going to hit the numbers that you need to hit with your sponsors. And then number three, it's going to keep your customer, your ticket buyer, engaged throughout the process. So then the thing is, is you create all those positive things like we were talking about with the kid earlier, right? Who's, oh my God, I went and took a test drive at the uh, BMW dealer and I got a free hat or like a t-shirt. I got like really cool, like uh festival t-shirt because I went and took a test drive. It's amazing, you know, and, I'm, you, uh, know. you don't actually care if it wasn't the person that they thought turned up, right? Because right. so, what would have happened in that journey is is that maybe another fan who didn't go to that event said, look, I, did you go to that clock and fat thing or whatever? Did you go? And go yeah, go, if you got a ticket, can you give it to me? Because then I can go to BMW and get this thing. And you know what's happened? The sponsors reached a whole new – they've acquired a whole new person that they – that this other person's doing their marketing for them. So in a way, it doesn't even matter if it's not the right person. Well, this, this all, all of these ideas go back to, to, and this is like a joke that I've been making now for 20 years, is I started out in nightclubs, and I go, everything I learned, 
about marketing I learned in nightclubs. And it was the same thing we would do. We did them with Jägermeister and we did it with the movie Boogie Nights, right? The same sort of thing. It was just like, nobody, they didn't care if you got us, if you got the target out of it. They didn't care if the person actually saw you at the club or they just went to see. They just, they were like going, oh my God, we could follow it from somehow that person had engaged with you. And then they ended up coming to give us their money. And that's all they cared about. They didn't care that the whole line. Free marketing. Someone yeah. else is doing a marketing for you. They were like, oh, this has legs. The legs being the, uh, the, the language, language they would use. They were like, well, and, you know, I was like, this is great. And whatever you want, as long as you're happy and you're giving me your money, I'm happy to. Um, now what I want to, what I want to do too though is because we talked around like stuff about making money and about the recovery from the pandemic. Um, and we only touched a little bit on, the Asian markets, but I want to spend a little bit of time real quick. If you still have the time talking about Asia specifically, because um, I think you and I agree that over the next probably 18 to 24 months, at least um, the big opportunities are going to be coming up in Asia because uh, in the States and in the Western countries in Europe, um, it's going to be a little bit, you know, the economic situation might be a little uh, tough for the next little bit just because of the nature of the pandemic. Um, so I want to ask you a few questions about the Asian markets because I'm curious about it. Uh, you know, I, I had, like I said, Greg, our friend, you know, I get, I get a chance to go to China now. That's awesome. It's great. So um, one of the first curious things that I'm always fascinated by is that no, typically, sorry, so I'm not actually, I've got to go. I'm sorry. Oh, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. <laughs> Now you fit right in. Now, now you know the tone of this thing. <laughs> the tone is completely busting chops. <laughs> well, the first person that's ever said that to you. I just want to be the first. I yeah, no, you them. definitely, you, you've definitely pulled in a few firsts today, so we're good. <laughs> <laughs> of course, of course, I'd love to touch on that. So, yeah. what do the Asian markets look like? Yeah, well, well, the first thing I want to ask about because this is always my again. You know your audience. My audience is I'm always about how you make money. Is that It seems that in China, and I don't know if this is true across Asia, that the, China, the Chinese ticket buyers, they buy the, high, the, the expensive stuff first. That's the oh. first stuff to go. Why is that and how do I make that work everywhere? <laughs> Why is that? The Asians like flaunting their wealth. Mm-hmm. And the Asians like the best of everything. So I've absolutely been involved where almost all the highest price tickets have gone immediately and almost none of the cheaper price tickets have gone. And that happens a lot. So it's all about, I mean, if you look at all the most expensive cars in the world being sold, look at all the most expensive wines. I mean, they're all... I mean, China's single-handedly inflated the, the price of some of the rarest wines in the world because they've bought them all up. They just want the best always, especially in, especially in China. Um, similarly in Philippines as well, I've seen it, Korea, Japan, they all just want the best. So, I mean, can you increase the size of the, uh, the area where the most expensive tickets are? Yeah, maybe, but then what you end up doing is just making that front row even more expensive. And I think there's definitely, if you're trying to increase yield, you could create markets where there were never markets before. And one of those would be end of aisle, for instance. So people are willing to pay more for an end of aisle seat because that means you can turn up late, you can leave early, and you can go out and get your beer during during the show without bumping into people. So I think this is a whole new 
market that is untapped. You just say, right, I'm going to make a certain ticket more expensive, end of aisle, so you've got a certain size venue, and you think, okay, I'm going to pick the average person buys two tickets, so I'm going to make the last four last four seats at end of aisle more expensive and see what happens. You know what happens? They all People get will pay for them. Yeah. This is like... So, this is yes, like where all the secondary market guys that I have that are listening right now are going. We've been doing that for twenty years, twenty five years without technology. Imagine when you when you're showing your 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 seat plan and you do you do an analysis of what sales are like before you did this and what sales are like afterwards. Suddenly you're going to go, well, all of the end of end of the aisles are going much quicker than before, and they're charging more money for them. Yeah, that's. Crazy town, I think, but so you've got to think uh, laterally about, you know, obviously you could do the front row way more expensive, the second row more expensive, the third row more expensive, but end of aisle more expensive, make them 20% more expensive. And I bet you too, and this would probably going to be one of those ones people are going, it would never work. And I'm telling you that it will because I've seen it work before. So let's say, depending on who our audience is, you can sell that back row, like those back rows at the end of the aisle for even more. Because people who want to get in, see the show, but get out and not get stuck with the crowd, they'll yeah. pay more for that. Absolutely, absolutely. And then do you know what? Nobody believes Beautiful. that because it's not it's not how seats. They're like, going, yes, they will. I've seen it. They do it all the time. Yeah, all the time. And then if if someone's a non-believer, say, so well, just give it a go. What have you got to lose? You can always change the price later on if they're digital. Yeah, why not? Yeah. But, um, yeah, so, um, I mean, if you want to touch on um, what the Asian markets look like, the venues and fees, are you interested in that sort of stuff? Yeah, I was going to say, like, what does the – in this, what I'm interested in is, right, because people um, want to know about what the, you know, what the market for – what the venues look like in, in Asia and China, especially China, a lot lately. And what I have found interesting, and I'll be curious to see if – this is actually real or if it's just I'm making stuff up because it's completely likely that I'm making stuff up. Um, but everybody gets stuck on Beijing and Hong Kong and a couple of the really big markets. But there's this huge number of events and venues and opportunities in all these other cities that, you know, I think um, they've been referred to as like second tier cities, but they are huge compared to American cities. Um, so, you know, is that true where there's like just, just so much opportunity just because of the size of the country? And then what do the venues and, you know, sizes and, you know, the relationship between the venues and the, the um, ticket companies look like in Asia? Well, okay. Well, that was a lot. In China, so that, that's, uh, in China I mean, Greg's the expert there, but on ticketing sides of things, I mean, there aren't many venue exclusivities. Okay. Um, in fact, the only real exclusivities you get are in, Hong Kong, a little bit in, that's mainly, that's the main place where you've got real exclusivities. The others may, some places have panels of ticketing companies, but most countries have open ticketing, which I mean, as a promoter, you can go to any venue you want and use any ticketing company you want. Well, let me ask you this, because you say Hong Kong is the place that, only place that really has any exclusive deals. Is there a reason why? Yeah, because the people that own the venues or manage or operate the venues happen to have a ticketing company. Oh, <laughs> yeah. I mean, because I guess what, I, what I'm always pushing towards is like, I'm like, you know, typically what's happening where there's um, the deals are exclusive. You see that um, innovation can sometimes not take place 
or it takes place at a slower rate. And so I was just curious, you know, in the States, yes, the, the deals are paid for, they're exclusive deals, and there's lots of money involved. Right. In Europe or in other parts of Asia, they're not. But then you see that there's much more competition from ticketing companies. There's much more innovation as far as marketing and selling the tickets go. And I was just curious if that ended up being the same way in Hong Kong as it did in the States, because yeah. I think it's an yeah. unintended consequence. Yeah. The main ticketing company, um, there are a couple of ticketing companies in Hong Kong. One is called um, City Line. Um, that supplies a white label to the government. Um, uh, venues and that white label is called Herb Ticks and um, I've still got lots of links in Hong Kong so be careful what I say but it's not the most advanced of systems right <laughs> um, and um, Hong Kong ticketing um, is a white label it used to be supplied by Cystic in Singapore now it's supplied by TG in uh in Australia. I think the reason why they changed their white label provider was because um, there was a, quite a lot of demand from promoters to use something a little bit um, different. Um, and uh, and one of the reasons why they were getting under a little bit of pressure is because there's another ticketing company in Hong Kong that doesn't have any exclusivities but is quite Advanced, it's called Ticket Flap, and I believe that the, the other promoters were looking at all the things that Ticket Flap could do, and then started putting some pressure on some of the other providers to say you need to do things a little bit more differently, a little bit differently. Yeah, and let me ask you this because I'm not. Again, this is one of those things that it seems from my research that I find to be accurate, but I don't know, right? Because I could be completely wrong, misreading things. It happens all the time. But the ticket companies. Most places they're they're kind of standalone businesses, or they, um, you know, they they're a part of just like the ticketing and entertainment ecosystem. But in Asia, it seems that a lot of the ticket companies are part of bigger businesses, um, either like real estate or tech, or uh, you know, they have the e-commerce aspect. Is that something? Am I making that up, or is that real? No, you've you've done your research brilliantly, there. So that's very very true. So um, <laughs> even yeah, a broke I mean, clock is right twice a day. <laughs> If you imagine that if ticketing isn't their core business, then innovation and the need to um, and the budgets to innovate just aren't really there. So as you, as you mentioned, I mean, in China it's Damai and that's owned by a tech company. In Hong Kong it's real estate. In Korea it's e-commerce, and in Japan it's convenience stores. Like um, the list goes on and on. So most of the large incumbents are ticketing companies in each country are just part of a very large conglomerate that makes lots of money elsewhere. So ticketing either isn't that important or it's a byproduct or um, or it's not profitable because ticketing fees are pretty low in Asia compared with uh, Europe and the US. So it's difficult to make tons of money. So maybe some of these ticketing companies are just seen as lost leaders in a big ecosystem just because they service a large audience that that company happens to uh, have acquired, if that makes sense to you. No, it totally makes sense. It's just a, it's more of a, and tell me if I'm wrong, it's just a way to service the customers of the larger business. You know, it's just an additional service. Yeah, and that means it's pretty tricky. I mean, I would challenge many of your your listeners to go on to a ticketing site in China, Korea, Japan, for instance, and successfully buy a ticket. I mean, they, they may run into language issues. They may run into uh, lack of a local credit card, lack of a local ID, lack of a local 
phone number, lack of a local uh, physical address. Uh, I mean, if you look at, if you look at, um, I'm, I'm finding it hard to buy a ticket for a show in Korea or Japan, for instance. You type that into the internet, you will find loads of companies, especially in Korea and Japan, that their business is to say, we know you can't buy a ticket. You, we know you're flying in from overseas or you're, or you're a, a foreigner living in Korea or Japan or whatever. And we know you want to see you too. And you don't stand a chance unless we buy the ticket for you and then somehow give it to you. And the problem there comes is that are you then going to trust that person? One. Two, are you going to part with all that money? And three, they're going to give you a physical ticket. So you're not actually probably going to get the ticket until you've got boots on in the ground, you know, in Japan or Korea. So are you going to spend whatever it is, a thousand bucks on a flight to Korea or Japan and then spend the money on a hotel and then turn up at the venue or some other place hoping you're going to get that ticket for you two? And if the, if you don't get a ticket, who are you going to complain to? How are you going to do it? And, you, you know, you, and then by then your wife, girlfriend, boyfriend, whatever it is, is absolutely crazy at you saying, I thought I was going to go see you too. And I've just spent all of my monthly money on doing it. I was going to say that it's, um, I'm lucky that I know people because I don't ever have to deal with that because you can't, like, there's no way you, you have to go through a, um, you know, it's a, I guess you would call it a broker, but it's like different than the broker that you would imagine as far as tickets go. It's more like a broker for like a, a real estate agent or something that helps yeah. you get the ticket. It's a little bit of a, um, confusing system. I mean, I did that for, I mean, I've been, I've been to Fuji Rock, which is an amazing festival in Japan. I've been many, many times. And every year, about three months before the festival was going to take place, I had my friend in, uh, in Japan named Colin. And I'd ring up Colin and he'll say, oh, is it that day? I go, yep, it's that day. Goes, you want me to buy a ticket for Fuji Rock for you? I go, yep. He goes, oh dear, here I go. I'm going to have to jump through so many hoops. It's going to be so difficult. And then eventually what I ended up doing actually is I ended up contacting Fuji Rock and I ended up doing a deal with Fuji Rock so that uh, the previous company I worked for could actually sell digital tickets for them for non-Japanese people outside of Japan. But that in itself was an extremely difficult process to go through. But, uh, sorry, the, the process of onboarding Fuji Rock to do it. But since then, you know, that, that, that ticketing company sold thousands of tickets for Fuji Rock. You know, way more than their expectations just because it was easier. Yeah. And I think, um, one, one of the things that's really interesting to me is, you know, I, I think I said it just a few minutes ago. It's about the future of ticketing. You're really is, in the near term, Asia and the middle, well, Asia specifically in the middle, but the Middle East also, um, because you have so many huge events coming up. There's the World Cup in Qatar in 2022. There's the Summer Olympics in Tokyo for next year, hopefully. Um, there's, was Korea had the Olympics in 2018? Is that right? Um, I mean, you got like, yeah. all, like a lot of these, like, I mean, there's just like so many different places. It's, um, it's just like a really, really exciting time. And, I guess for for me, I want to know, you know, how is that creating um, innovation? You know, how is that, you know, what's that look like for somebody who's spent so long there? Um, well, one, yeah, it's absolutely huge. Just look at the amount of money that all these governments are spending on bringing Formula One to all these different countries in Asia. Uh, they're spending money uh, marketing to try and make sure they get the Summer Olympic Games, the Winter Olympic Games, the Rugby World Cup, the FIFA World Cup, all these things. And then you look at the infrastructure build. Look at all the venues that are being built across 
first, second, third tier cities in China. Um, look at all the theme parks, water parks. I mean, if there are a couple of websites out there that show all of the construction going on in uh, theme parks and water parks globally and Asia and the Middle East are absolutely dominating that. I mean, look at Merlin and Six Flags and Disney. They're all building all these integrated um, resorts uh, over in Asia and and really what ticketing has to do is really uh, step up to the plate to make sure that they to satisfy that amazing demand that these these integrated businesses are going to have is that these ticketing companies have got to see a bigger picture of being integrating with car parks, with uh, with um, sedated hotel keys, with um, uh, online travel agents. I mean, the the level of integration that ticketing companies could be doing to integrate with Salesforce and all these different things could be huge. And, and generally what I see in Asia is quite a lot of these ticketing companies are basically a facilitation platform. You as a promoter send a punter away from your own online or physical asset to a ticketing company. They fulfill a ticket and that's it. I mean, that's pretty dinosaur-esque. You know, you need so many you need, places you can lose along the way. Every time they like you force them to click and go somewhere else, you can lose them. Yeah. It's just stupid. Yeah, so, I mean, you need, uh, with an integrated resort, you need a ticketing company to be not a standalone thing that just sells tickets for you. It's got to integrate with your um, with your rewards program, your hotel, your car park. You've got to be an activation tool. I mean, when someone buys a ticket for an event at an integrated resort, why isn't the ticketing company saying, oh, do you want to um, do you want to sign on to have a rewards program there for, for instance, a casino? Extremely valuable, right? There are these casinos, uh, licenses that are going to be given away in Japan, not given away, but uh, that are going to be granted in Japan at some stage. And um, you've got to integrate with them. The ticketing company's got to integrate with their mice. It's got to integrate with the hotel, with the... With, I mean, think about the overseas travel agents, the online travel agents. I mean, these, these large venues are going to be selling lots of tickets of packages with flights and hotels and things. How are you managing that? These, at the moment, it's all done almost physically. I know that some of these integrated resorts are physically sending 100 tickets in the post to travel agents in other countries. And once if that, once it gets lost, for instance, how do you account for it? I mean, and all these online travel agents have different ways of settling. Some might be cash on delivery. You need an API with discovery and um, payment, clearly. Some of them might be invoices. Some of them might be you sell 50 tickets and then we'll send you another. After you've done that, you settle on that. We'll then send you another 50. It could be monthly. How are you going to manage all that risk? I mean, when the head of risk and finance is looking at something saying, wow, we've got, one hundred, a thousand tickets to that show is, is being sold by Seatrip, the world's largest uh, online travel agent. Are they good for the money? Yeah, maybe. But what was if a thousand are being sold by some mum and pop uh, OTA in the third tier city in China? Are, you, are they good for the money? Are they reselling it at inflated prices if it if it sells out? Things like that. You really need to have incredibly deep integrations in lots of different departments with inside large complex uh, resorts. Yeah, it, it seems oh, so very quickly there. I mean, do you no, know what I mean? I it's very That's exactly right. And it, it brings up like a really important thing, right? It's like, um, you know, this is a bigger point for just 
besides Asia or any, even the conversation that we're talking about, if we're looking at what the post-pandemic world looks like, um, having a, a stronger integrations in your system is, is really wise for three three reasons. And I think about the last time I went to Vegas and the way that like I tried to, you know, I got a stay at the ARIA, so then I was like able to book certain things there, but then I had to go outside of the ARIA website if I wanted to book tickets to a show or do all these other things, right? Yeah. It did three things, right? It it made it easier for them to lose track of me, right? Because like you said, it, or the data conversation. The more you know about me, the, the longer you can keep in touch with me, the better it becomes for you. Number two, it's it, you, you're not serving me very well if I'm chasing all over the internet, right? And then number three is if I'm dealing with somebody or like if you're if either your platform or if I'm dealing with a, a travel agent or somebody who's a physical person, like a real person, it doesn't allow them to sell as effectively and efficiently as they could because they're having to keep all this specialized knowledge in their head, um, figure out all these different points of sale or relationships they need to manage when it really should be as simple as like, let me go here. Oh my God, Martin, you, you, do you want to get the buffet, right? Do you want to add the buffet in right now? Do you want to take it to go see Britney Spears while you're here, right? And just make it so much more seamlessly because the truth is, is that the data is laid out pretty clearly that if I keep you on the website and I keep offering you things, that it will increase your spend if I keep you at that point of purchase now. You know, the best time is either once they're on site and you have somebody really, really talented or it's before they come on the trip because it's a sunk cost, right? Yeah. But if you lose people and you get them off of the site, then it becomes a separate transaction and they make a different accounting in their head. It's all laid out in consumer psychology. So it's like an integrated system just makes a whole lot of sense. Um, I mean, you know, you don't have to yeah. sell me. I'm sold. Yeah. I mean, let, let me give you an example. Let's say, I mean, let's use the casino example. You've got some high roller who's, uh, your, your pit boss is rating him on the theoretical amount of money that he's going to make the longer he stays at the table gambling, for instance. So the pit boss gets chatting. Okay, when are you leaving? And the, the guy goes, I'm leaving tomorrow. You go, oh, really? That's a shame. I want to give you a ticket to see Madonna the day after tomorrow. Oh, wow, I love Madonna. Yeah, we know you do so because you, you know, because of whatever profile I've got. And they go, you know what, I think I'll extend my stay by day. Or you say, you know what, can we give your wife and your three kids tickets to Madonna the day after tomorrow? By the way, you don't have to go to the reception or concierge to get those tickets. I've put them on your key card, on your on your card key. So that's how you get in. So, you know, you use your digital card to get into your hotel room. It's already, I'll just press a button here, sir. It's done. And then you've got the tickets, right? What happens? The guy may, or woman, may stay longer on site and gamble more and you've given him a really good experience. Yeah. No, it's exactly right. Everything you can do um, to personalize is better because I don't know that if you make things frictionless, it ne is necessarily as great as it's mytho mythologized by people. But I know that personalization definitely plays out as being extremely valuable. And in this case, that's exactly what, what could happen. Yeah, that's all about, I like all that, the segregation of one, right? Everyone gets delivered a different experience according to their tastes. Yeah. And let me ask you, because now I know we're getting short on time here. We've, go, we've gone and done the thing now. We've been here for... So you need to leave me now. Okay. <laughs> oh, yeah, soon. soon. Yeah, exactly right. Um, but uh, what, two other things about Asia before we, um, before we wrap up here, because I'm, I'm curious about this, because this came up when I was talking with Greg um, a couple months back. Is And I think because we've talked so much about how many opportunities there are in Asia and so many of the different things that we can learn. We touched on it a little bit, but one of the things I've been curious about and I've been 
trying to convey this to people a lot, is the difference in doing business between the East and the West, because they are entirely different beasts. Um, you talked about the start, whereas like reaction to the pandemic is people are law-abiding and compliant. Um, they stayed home. They did what they were supposed to. Um, but Greg talked about it a little bit more, and I'm curious because you had a different perspective. Like Greg is big on the venues. You were on the ticketing side. Is In the East, everything's like the government's job – or the West, the government's job is to support business. And in the West, it's a lot of times the other way around where the business is there to support the aims of the government and drive um, you know, whatever the government's plan, especially in China. You know, what – how is that going to impact what the business culture is going to look like over the next little bit? And, you know, what are some of the things that we should um, be paying attention to there? Um, and I don't know if I made that very clear because, again, uh, you rephrase it again, please. Yeah, of course. Um, so, I, I mean, this, I guess I want to get your perspective on how the, you know, how doing business in the East is different than doing business in the West. And the way Greg described it when we talked about it was, in the East, the government is – the businesses are there to support the government. In the yeah. West, it's often that the government supports the business. Yeah. And it, it creates a, a very um, a conflicting um, experience for people, for companies that are coming from the East going – or from the West going to the East. And I think yeah. that sometimes yeah. it's a struggle. I haven't got a different view from Greg. I mean, I speak to Greg a lot, and I agree that Greg's, I mean, China's very uh, prescriptive, and they lay out their five-year plans or whatever they are, and then if you align with those five-year plans with your objectives along with the government, then they will definitely uh, help you along the way. Um, now, I haven't really got much to add um, apart from to underline that, you know, Greg's correct, basically, which is pretty rare for me. My wife would say, wow, you had nothing to add because I can talk a bit. <laughs> also, I was going to say, Greg is going to be, he's going to love that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Greg's right. Um, uh, yeah, I think, um, no, I think that, uh, that there'll definitely be um, a lot more direction from Asian um, governments about what you can and can't do, I think. So, and, and the gov- and the businesses won't want to um, challenge that, I would say. Yeah. Okay. No, that makes sense. And then the final thing I want to hit on, which will be like a payoff for a lot of the, sec- the brokers that and secondary market folk that listen, have listened this far, is um, – and because I'm curious about it because – Somehow or another, I don't know exactly how this is, but I end up being uh, the resource for a lot of people in the secondary market all over the world. Um, and in Europe, it's different than the U.S. Everybody's different than the U.S. So I think that's really what it comes down to. Um, but you said that there's a, a moving – how did you describe it to me? That, that there's a movement going against the secondary market in Asia. Um, but right now it's largely unregulated. Is that is that right? And so that would mean in the near term, there's likely opportunities for the secondary market in Asia. But that's only if you you act wisely now. Well, I, I come from a primary background, so encouraging secondary to come to Asia is definitely not part of my mandate. But um, having said that, I mean you've asked the question, I'll answer it truthfully. In the yeah, I mean re- you. you Secondary people have seen that the the net is tightening with regards to what they're allowed to do marketing wise and regulation wise in places like America and, and Europe. And in Asia, very few countries have got much regulation, and those that have got regulation are not really enforcing it. Um, and so um, 
I would say that um, I've definitely seen StubHub and Viagogo, for instance, get more and more active in Asia since I've been there from almost non-active to very active. Um, and there's a reason for that, that um, you know, they're being constrained in Europe and the US. And uh, in Asia, I mean, if you're, I, mean, I don't want to be disparaging, but if you're a less developed country in Asia, you're more likely going to be wanting to pass more important laws uh, because you've got a less uh, mature um, legal system. So you're going to be passing laws around, you know, labour laws and things more than what are we doing about the secondary and, and primary ticketing market. Uh, so uh, there is one country, though, that's moved quite swiftly, and that's Japan. They have banned secondary ahead of the... Uh, Ahead of the Olympics, so um, and I think in China it's, I think it's broadly illegal, but I've never seen anyone get you know get penalised for it. I think they're called scalpers. I think are called yellow cows in China, which is which might be a cause of uh, <laughs> laughter for you and other people. So we have to look into it. But I'm pretty sure a scalper's a yellow cow in China. I hope so because that would be like really like <laughs> a great name though. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> I don't know that like you could really set out to come up with a better uh, better name uh, if because you, you can't laugh at that you're taking yourself far too seriously. Yeah, but, there, but there's uh, something else that um, I wanted to touch on, and that was uh, about um, very few ticketing companies in Asia are um, pan Asian, which means they're siloed a bit. So means they only really market, they can only really deal with local um, clients. So that means if you're an integrated resort, for instance, and a lot of your sales are going to come from non-locals. So, for instance, if you've got a casino in Singapore, Singaporeans aren't really meant to go to the casinos in Singapore. In Japan, the Japanese are going to be restricted. In Korea, the Koreans are going to be restricted. So that means that if you're thinking about using a local ticketing partner, well, they'd be good at maybe getting some local people to come, but you want to get foreigners to come. So um, it would make sense if you were to look at a pan-Asian ticketing company, or at least the ticketing company has the ability to be pan-Asian with multiple languages, multiple currencies, multiple properties and things. And so um, yeah, it could be worth looking at someone like, Melco have got that type of system in place um, that they can do multiple languages, multiple currencies, and multiple properties. Um, so I would definitely look at that if if I was a large promoter wanting to do a pan Asian event, or if I was an integrated resort wanting to um, reach non locals to where your resort is based. Then you really do need to look at a more integrated pan-Asian ticketing company. So, that, and that touches on what we were talking about earlier about some of the challenges and the cultural, cultural thing because you talked about um, very much siloed, very much isolated, um, and needing to be specialized because in a lot of cases, there's no concessions made for a different culture to come to your, to your country and, and do any business. So that makes perfect sense. See, this is why you have like smart people on the podcast because then they help bring me in and bring me back where I'm supposed to be. <laughs> so, so Martin, how do people find you on the internet? Oh, well, where do they connect LinkedIn's, with you? LinkedIn's pretty good. Um, 
Uh, Martin Haig, H-A-I-G-H. That's probably the best way. Uh, I'll supply to you maybe a couple of, uh, slides or something if you want a yeah. couple of things that talked about this so that they can, I don't know if you can put that on your, on your site so they can download that and I'll have my contact details on there. I can definitely, if, if people send me an email, daviddavewakeman.com, uh, I will make sure they get the slides or if they sign up for the Talking Tickets newsletter, uh, which they can also get by doing that, I'll make sure that people have those slides and get access to that. And, and, and on my, my email is martinjdhaig at gmail.com. I don't know if that's uh, okay to broadcast. Yeah, no, that's totally fine. And look, plug away. This is, <laughs> this is what I'm here for, plug away. Hey, Martin, thank you so much for doing this, man. Thank you for having me. There was my conversation with Martin Hay on The Business of Fun. Let me know what you thought. You can send me an email. It is my name, Dave, at DaveWakeman.com. Or you can visit my website. It's DaveWakeman.com, where you can find my blog, uh, anything I'm up to, uh, you know, like the NATB's virtual summit on the 14th and 15th of July, right? Talking about relationships on the 15th with uh, Patrick Ryan, Corey Gibbs, and Ken Sulkey. Um, make sure you check out my newsletter, Talking Tickets. It is a weekly newsletter that is dedicated to the world of sports entertainment tickets all that fun stuff uh, you can get on that by visiting the website of davewakeman.com look for the newsletter tab or send me an email david davewakeman.com and tell me to add you to the newsletter it's great five top stories with a little analysis and some action items fantastic stuff check it out make sure that you check out booking protect's website bookingprotect.com so you can check on resources and the partnership where we will we are well-being so that you can make sure that everybody in your organization is, has the right help they need for their mental health. Um, this pandemic and the fallout from it have been devastating for so many people. And I think some of the psychological and mental health tolls of this have yet to be fully and completely recognized. Um, Booking Protect and We Are Wellbeing have put together some resources and some tools that you can find out about on the website. Uh, make sure you check them out. Make sure you're doing the right thing to help make sure your teams and your people uh, are getting the support they need, You know, have their heads in the right place. It's extremely difficult on everybody. Um, you know, If I can be a resource for anybody, you know, email me. Dave at DaveWakeman.com. Send me a WhatsApp, an email, um, a text. Uh, hook up with me somehow on the phone if you need to talk to somebody. Uh, you, you, here's my cell phone number. It's area. It's country code 1-917-705-6301. You know, don't feel like you have to go through any of this all by yourself. Um, and definitely don't. Make sure you check out the resources at WeWillRecover.live. We Will Recover is an initiative started by Anar and Martin from Activity Stream and their team. Uh, it's a really great effort. There is over 20, I think, organizations from around the world chipping in with their ideas, um, their efforts, their frameworks, um, everything to you know, help give you and your organizations the resources, the ideas that we need to recover. Um, it's not a solo effort to get out of this thing. Um, you know, so we're all in this together. So go to wewillrecover.live and check out all the stuff that uh, the Activity Stream team has put together, um, you know, and find the resources that are coming from people like me, um, the, 
the kids at Stay 22, um, the Ticketing Professionals Conference in Australia, the TPC in the UK, uh, NTIX, uh, QQ. You know, there's like so many people, right? Um, make sure you check them out. Made Media. I, I'm forgetting people and I'm sorry, um, but it's just like so many great people who are just giving ideas and giving resources, giving tools um, to help make sure we can all get back together. Um, as I think Maureen is f- uh, famous for saying, we will hug again. You know, it's uh, make sure, you know, you check those things out. Um, you know, whatever we can do to all get together and help get through this as quickly and as painlessly as possible. Um, you know, as I mentioned in the introduction, the idea of the Stockdale paradox has really been very helpful for me. Um, and it's been helpful for helping me understand that you kind of keep your head down and just keep pushing, pushing, pushing. And I think that's super important to remember now because eventually any crisis ends we don't know when it's going to end exactly, but we have to just keep moving forward. Um, you know, and like I said, if you need anybody, you know, let me be a resource for you. Um, you don't have to need anything specific. You know, just let know that I'm here uh, as someone to talk to, someone to reach out to, someone to connect with. Um, because I don't want anybody to feel like they're alone or not. They don't have someone who's in their corner because I'm in all of your corners. So... Until next time, thank you so much for listening. I believe this is the longest Business of Fun podcast episode ever. You know, uh, check me out, DaveWakeman.com. Check out my friends at BookingProtect, BookingProtect.com. WeWillRecover.live. Check out everybody, right? You need something, let us know. Um, Thank you for listening. I'll talk to you soon. Take it easy.